0: Hi, everyone. Gwen I here. If you're hearing my voice, it's because you're listening to the Third Coast Podcast. If you're listening to the Third Coast Podcast, you know what a value it is, since, in fact, it's free. We give you 52 podcasts a year, rain or shine, because nothing will stop us from sharing amazing, creative, gripping stories with you. Radio that you can't find anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. How do we make it happen? As an independent arts organization, we do it with your support. So please make a year-end, and may I add, tax-deductible donation to keep the Third Coast podcast coming to you week in and week out. $25 or $2,500. We'd love your help to end this year in the black and start next year's exciting lineup of events with a bang. You can donate at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. And thanks. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best, the 2013 Third Coast Festival broadcast.
4: I'm not saying it's okay to be in the game. I'm not saying that I approve of it. I agree with it, you know. But this ain't a fairy tale.
3: Was it real? That's what you want to even know, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I drive my grandsons crazy because they can't bear me not telling them.
0: Today, we bring you the best audio documentaries of the year, winners of our 13th annual Richard H. Freehouse Foundation competition.
5: Margaret? I didn't want kids in the school to look at my mother and be like, wow, she raised
6: nothing.
7: I'm not sure I even approve of this documentary.
6: David Sells, age 12, supported his drowning playfellow and sank with him in his arms.
0: The Third Coast Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago dedicated heart, soul, and ears to great radio. All year long, we gather the best stories from around the world and share them on the radio, via podcast, at live listening events, and every other way we can dream up. We also hold a worldwide competition to honor the very best audio documentaries of the year. This year, two dozen expert judges selected nine winners from a total of 270 entries. On this special broadcast, we bring you the winners, plus an interview with the producers behind this year's Gold Award-winning story.
8: One of the things that I was struck by was the students' inability to see injustice in the situation they were living out.
0: The Third Coast Best News Feature Award recognizes top work produced by newsrooms around the world, work that borrows the best qualities of the documentary form, memorable characters, carefully composed scenes, sound-rich storytelling, and applies them to news reports. After Hurricane Sandy last fall, New York suffered a massive power outage. Reporter Marianne McCune set out to check on a neighbor who hadn't been heard from, and of course, she brought her recording equipment along. In less than 24 hours, her story was on the radio. In choosing this as the best news feature, the judges said, In less than six and a half minutes, McCune delivers a highly memorable tour of a storm-ravaged community. A meaningful reflection of reality, succinctly told on Deadline. Bravo. Here is Woman Emerges from the Dark.
2: Margaret Maynard lives on the eighth floor, and when I got there via the stairs... A family of Chinese immigrants emerged from the door next to hers.
6: You're going to our relatives right now to so take a shower because we haven't had water.
2: The neighborhood has no power, and in a 16-floor building, that means no water either. Margaret? I explained to Mrs. Maynard that a friend of a friend of her nephews in the British West Indies had sent an email saying they couldn't reach her and could someone check in.
9: okay so far. I ain't no water, no.
2: Do you want to call your relatives on my phone? Wearing slippers and layers of house dresses and sweaters. She says she's fine despite the fact that no one has checked on her until now. I'm 87 years old. She has a radio with batteries. She's been eating crackers and orange juice and has other canned and boxed foods. But she's wondering what happened to the ham she thought was in her fridge. Let me get a phone book. When the power went out Monday, so did her phone. Since then, she's talked to no one. She shuffles through the apartment looking for her phone book so we can call her relatives. You want me to look in the fridge for the ham while you're looking for the brown book? Okay. Okay.
9: You don't see no ham there,
2: right? I didn't see any. Your refrigerator smells a little bit like things are starting to go bad, too. Oh, God,
6: I'm ready.
2: We try her sister in Brooklyn, but the call doesn't go through. Really? We're waiting, not yet. So How she gives me a number in Harlem, her best okay, friend, the maid of honor in her wedding 60 years ago. Oh, it's ringing. Hello? Doris? Yes? Um,
10: there's a reporter from the news helping me out here. They, they, they can't get me because I, I don't have no phone, no light, no nothing. So what you want to do now? What I can't do, can't do nothing.
2: The two start to go back and forth, arguing about whether Mrs. Maynard should leave.
10: Well, I can't come down the steps because all the lights are out and whatnot. What am I going to do? Uh, you know, I can't walk too good.
1: But you can't stay there like that, all Yeah,
10: that's okay.
1: Oh, Lord. I don't want to go no shelter. It's, Stop being hard
10: headed. I'm hard headed. She
2: says she's fine on water, fine on food. The only thing she's worried about is figuring out a way to flush the toilet.
10: I gotta to flush it, I don't want it to flow, overflow now, so that'd be another mess.
2: That would be another, <laughs> another mess. mess.
10: I I'm not complaining. Some people worse off than I, you
2: know. I say goodbye, thinking I'll go to the senior center to see what they can do. The stairway going down is black. You see nothing if you don't have a light, and the people going down ahead of me don't. Everything okay? No, because we don't have no light. Do you, I have my phone for a flashlight. I can come down with you okay, guys. Okay, can you come yeah. in front of us? Yeah. Thank you. Thank no you. problem. I lead them down a floor before my light goes out. Uh-oh, my phone just died. Just okay. to hold on, please. Yeah, night. yeah, yeah. Then another light appears below us. All right, thank you. All right. Somebody's lighting up the stairs for us with a light.
9: They, they sell them $3 flashlights up the block somewhere. All yeah. right.
2: How are you guys doing?
9: Bad. Is everybody doing bad over here? And they, okay. It should have been an emergency water truck over here. They didn't see if we had food or anything, you know? The supermarkets don't even really want to sell anything. They open, but if you don't have cash, you 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 messed up. You know, everybody in these projects, they take EBT, you know. Who stamps, yeah, right. food stamps
2: and, you know. Jesse Kent and Michael Dave hold the mayor accountable. Dave wants to make sure his complaints don't affect the election.
9: Then they're going to blame this on Obama. Obama ain't do this. Obama ain't do this. Obama ain't do this. Let's
2: see, is this the exit? Once outside, Candy Silva explains she and her son just moved here from a homeless shelter in the Bronx. This is her first day out since the storm, and she knows nothing about the extent of the power outage. Where is the light? Like? Is it the whole city? Or the whole, what is it? I tell her Upper Manhattan it's and West much city, of the city have electricity. electricity.
3: Really? We have to get a cab so it could take us to the bank and then we get some money. This is really frustrating. This is really bad. I'm so scared.
2: And we just moved here a week ago. Across the street, there's free water. All right, I'm walking up to a fire hydrant, and people are filling jars and all kinds of bottles with water from the hydrant. We need to flush those toilets. Carmen Cortez says she won't let bacteria grow in hers. It's about survival. Any empty bottle we can find, we're just filling it up because there's no water in any of the apartments. Lydia Ortiz is heading out of town today after several days volunteering at a shelter she says was pretty sad, despite the best efforts of its staff.
3: A lot of seniors, alone, scared, hungry.
2: Further down the block is the senior center which is closed. But it's run by Henry Street Settlement, and across the street, employees are giving out meals.
3: We're giving out lunches.
2: At the settlement's headquarters, they're working their gas stove. Dozens of hamburgers and hot dogs are on the grill. Henry Street delivers to the homes of senior citizens even when there's
11: no hurricane.
2: But this week, the group's executive director says they're also trying to get to people who just can't come down the stairs.
11: Some of our drivers are coming back reporting that when they deliver boxes either to a high-up floor or to a, uh, particular destinations that our seniors are literally crying, not only because they were remembered in the storm, but just to have that contact with the driver.
2: I tell him about Margaret Maynard on the eighth floor of LaGuardia Houses, and he says he'll get someone there. But later in the day, I learn she's all taken care of. Doris George, the maid of honor, called Mrs. Maynard's sister. Her sister mobilized her own son, and Mrs. Maynard is now safely with him in Queens, like it or not.
0: Woman Emerges from the Dark was produced by Marianne McCune and edited by Karen Frillman for WNYC in New York. Marianne just moved to San Francisco, where she's working for NPR's Planet Money, bracing herself for earthquakes instead of hurricanes and still missing New York. Today, we're listening to the best audio stories of the year, winners of the Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. Our next story is an Honorable Mention Award winner. In the heart of London, in one of the city's biggest parks, there exists one of its smallest memorials. While unobtrusive in placement and design... This monument memorializes great feats of self-sacrifice. Producer Kathy Fitzgerald walked through the park hundreds of times before she looked up one day and noticed the wall of beautiful plaques that inspired her story, No Greater Love.
12: Spend a day in the park and you'll see all sorts. Politicians on a tour of city gardens. Cleaners just knocked off after the night shift. Doctors from the nearby hospital on a sandwich break. But sooner or later... If you stay long enough, you'll have the memorial and its ghosts, all to yourself.
7: You wouldn't want this to be a major part of the tourist trail. Um, If this became the London Eye, it wouldn't wouldn't have its sort of cult value. I mean, I'm not sure I even approve of this documentary. (laughs) popularising it.
12: That's the playwright, Patrick Marber. He was the first person to popularise the monument by writing about it in his play, closer. You might have seen the movie starring Natalie Portman and Jude Law.
7: There's something beautiful about being in a green place with buildings all around you. It's it's lovely and you can hear the traffic but it's not violently loud and there's something about it as a place that asks for your respect.
12: Do you come and sit here much?
7: I, I walk through this park quite a lot but I'll sort of commune with the memorial about once a year find myself here and I'll spend time looking at the plaques. They're little bits of poetry, sort of little haikus of death, and once you read one, you want to find out how everyone else died. We're much fixated on death, we the living. Frederick Alfred Croft, inspector, aged 31, saved a lunatic woman from suicide at Woolwich Arsenal Station, but was himself run over by the train, January 11th, 1878. You don't get more information, and you'd quite like a bit more information. You want to hear their voices in some way. It forces your imagination into action. But because it was so long ago, it sort of, well, it doesn't hurt anymore, but then then it does, it, it grabs you. It's very potent.
6: David Selves, aged 12, supported his drowning playfellow and sank with him Clasped in his arms, September the 12th, 1886.
7: Supported his. Oh, 12 years old. Supported his drowning playfellow and sank with him, clasped in his arms. That's, that kills me. It forced you to celebrate that you are living and to feel this whimper. Much more humanising than a load of names or a statue of a great man. It's the narrative and it draws us in and it makes us go, oh. But re- And it makes you sort of go, oh, life.
12: The man responsible for these odd, beautiful plaques was the 19th century artist George Frederick Watts. The son of a piano maker, Watts didn't hold much with the pomp and circumstance of the Victorian era. He turned down a baronetcy, Twice. Memorials usually commemorate soldiers or politicians. But Watts wanted to celebrate the acts of courage that history usually overlooks.
1: Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. In 1887, he wrote to the editor of the Times newspaper, Sir, the history of Her Majesty's reign would gain a luster were the nation to erect a monument, say, here in London to record the names of these likely-to-be-forgotten heroes.
12: Thirteen years and a lot of his own money later, the memorial of heroic self-sacrifice was unveiled. Watts had been collecting newspaper articles about the heroism of the lower classes for years. nursemaids labourers, signalmen. Now he could tell their stories.
1: The material prosperity of a nation is not an abiding possession the deeds of its people are.
6: First day in London and we decided to use the tube. <laughs> what a performance. We got to where we were supposed to get. Now it's the trouble is getting back. And we struck this place as absolutely gorgeous. And I don't think I'll ever forget it. I love Ernest Benning. He was aged 22. He was a compositor. Upset from a boat one, dark night off him. Pimlico Pier Pimlico Grasped an all with one hand Supporting a woman With the other He sank as she was rescued August the 25th, 1883 Where are you from in New Zealand? Oh, Christchurch We've just had two horrific earthquakes Three actually 190 people died The heroics of people And the police and that were telling them Don't go in there And they just says We are And they did And there were all colours of people, creeds of people, all ages of people... ...shot into the earthquake, (laughs) damaged buildings and pulled people out. All they can think of is that other person.
12: Part of the fascination of the plaques, as with any memorial... ...is that the brevity of an inscription can't ever capture the fullness of a life. We feel the loss of everything the respectful words don't tell us. What Amelia Kennedy had for breakfast before she died saving her sister from a burning house. What Thomas Simpson might have done with his day off if he hadn't died rescuing people from breaking ice at Highgate Ponds. Whether Elizabeth Boxall, aged 17, who died trying to save a child from a runaway horse, had a sweetheart who wondered where she'd got to when she didn't come home. We fill in the gaps. And in doing so, it's easy to get lost in the romance of the story and forget that these are real people.
0: That was an excerpt of No Greater Love, produced by Kathy Fitzgerald and Matt Thompson for Rocket House Productions and the BBC World Service. It won an honorable mention in our 2013 Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2013 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxine. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Today, we're listening to winners of our annual documentary competition, but you can also hear great radio from around the world anytime on our Third Coast podcast. Just visit thirdcoastfestival.org to subscribe. Coming up next, one teenager with a strong voice speaks out against a troubling trend on
10: the internet. There's this photo on Facebook of this girl. She's laying down on her bed. She seems to be half naked. Stay with us.
0: Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Gwen Maxey. When you send a radio story out into the ether, it's hard to know who'll hear it, let alone the impact it may have. Some stories can, quite literally, through their depth, their breadth, change lives. Third Coast recognizes these powerful stories with our Radio Impact Award. This year's goes to WNYC rookie reporter Timitayo Figbenle and producer Courtney Stein. Like a lot of teenagers, Timitayo is online all the time. When she became aware of the growing trend of slut-shaming, using photos and videos to turn a girl's private life into a stunningly public display, she was moved to do something about it. She produced a radio story that sparked a nationwide conversation about creating a more civil online culture no small feat. Here is the modern day Scarlet Letter A.
10: Back in 17th century Puritan times, shaming women like Hester Prynne for their wanton acts was a whole town effort.
0: Hester Prynne, you have been found guilty of adultery.
10: I was 10 when I read the Scarlet Letter. Has
6: she no shame.
10: Hester was cast out of the community and forced to wear red letter A for adultery
6: better if they put the brand of the hot iron
10: on her that she could not hide slut shaming like this has been going on for centuries but now there's a new tool instead of shaming hussies in the town square there are thousands of facebook and web pages literally called exposing hoes so there's this photo on facebook of this girl she's laying down on her bed She seems to be half naked. All she had on was a white t-shirt. And the board tagged her in the picture so everybody could go to her page. This picture was put up 43 minutes ago, and it already has 443 likes and 261 comments. People post pictures and videos and make smut lists for their neighborhood or school. I'm just going to read some of the comments now. Your life is officially shot. LMAO. One boy put. I think she gonna cut her veins when she see this. As for the boy who put up the picture, um, the boy just actually posted a status. He said he has two thousand friend requests because of the photo he just put up. And this is like a regular occurrence. Like, it. I'm sure it's gonna be pulled down. Maybe I should report it right now, but I don't know. Two years ago, when I was in ninth grade. A girl in my class faced a similar situation. Her boyfriend put an intimate video of them up on the Internet. It was the talk of the town. He
5: was going around holding his head high saying, oh, well, I was able to do this with her, and he gave me a bad name. It was on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Worldstar, everything.
10: So Worldstar is like the X-rated version of YouTube. It was on Worldstar? It was on everything. It's to a social media network, it's over for her life. Yeah, I think that's wrong, right? I gathered a group of girls in my school to talk about slut-shaming online. They be getting exposed, like... Like Yesterday, <laughs> like yesterday there was some girl, she was in a picture with, like, a... Uh, Penis. In her mouth. Yeah, look, smiling. Girls often feel people they need to shame other girls for their from. improper so behavior. Girls do it to themselves. Half the time we came and blame guys. Like, she was really looking into the camera smiling. She wasn't smiling. But it's not always the girl's fault. There's people that they don't know when they're taking the picture. There's people that don't know they're getting recorded. That's not fair that a guy can actually hide his phone, have sex with you, and record you, and then show it to his friends like, yo, look. When um, I was talking to the girl this happened to, she said she didn't know she was being recorded.
5: I kind of had a feeling that something was wrong, but I didn't
10: want to believe it. Can you just, like, just walk me through the first day you came to school after it happened? Well, I came to school hoping
5: that it wouldn't be too big of a deal. I was walking around the school with my hood on trying to just, like, get to class. But
10: even the principal already knew about the video. He brought her to his office and called her mom.
5: I went back to class and like half an hour later my mother was in the school. And I couldn't even look at my mother because I felt hurt and I also felt like I disrespected her and that I didn't want kids in the school to look at my mother and be like, wow, she raised nothing.
10: I see girls get exposed on my Facebook news feed almost every day. It
13: was about seventh grade, and I'm in twelfth grade now.
10: Back in middle school, this guy emailed a picture of his girlfriend without a shirt on to some of his friends. It spread around their entire school. Did she transfer out of the school after nope. it happened? she
13: stayed and, and continued to be the, the smut, smitty, slide, skip-scap, scallywap, you know, whore.
10: I don't want to make an assumption, because he's a friend of mine. But maybe he doesn't understand the seriousness of what he did. So did you intend it to be malicious? I
13: guess I thought it would be cool or something. Um, It took me a day to send it out, and then from a day, it just went around, went around, went around, until it finally got back to the school, and the teachers saw it.
10: Schools have had to take on a new role. Some students screenshot the cyberbullying they see online, print it out, and bring it to the teachers as evidence. Can you tell me your name, please? My name is Erica Doyle. Erica is the assistant principal at my school. In cases where somebody might put up a sexually explicit video, is is it necessary for you to contact the authorities?
8: Yes, absolutely. Because once we're dealing with digital media that is sexually explicit, that has been captured and shared with the public, that actually now is a criminal matter.
13: I got arrested, they handcuffed me to a bench. That was pretty scary.
10: But most of the time, the police don't find out. Kids don't usually report it. You said that when you decided to do it, you thought it would make you cool. So, did it make you cool?
13: Yeah, after it happened, there was a lot of like, yeah, man, that was awesome.
10: You sound pretty unremorseful right now.
13: I I regret doing it to her, but still, I didn't have to go to jail. Porn websites do it every day, so... Even the girls gave me props. But there was about, like, 1% of them that, that, you know, that thought I did the wrong thing.
10: I don't typically do this. But when I saw that photo of the girl lying down on her bed without underwear... Submit a report. I decided to report it to Facebook as harassment. Okay, so Facebook sent me a notification. It says... Fifteen minutes later, the photo was still up. Facebook said that it didn't violate their community standards. But their community standards state a strict policy against any explicitly sexual content where a minor is involved. It now has 500 likes. So then I reported it as pornographic content. After another 15 minutes, I got a similar message. Content not removed. What? why is the content now removed i talked to a facebook spokesperson she said she can't talk about specific cases and she refused to go on record about anything to do with the issue don't know what to do and the photo's still going to be up there before you yourself were affected what did you think of girls like that and what do you think now Well, I would do the same thing that happened to me. Like,
5: I was calling them names and I was judging them. But then when it happened to me, there were situations, like on Facebook, where they'd be blowing up some other girl's spot. And I'm like, wow, she screwed up the same way I did.
10: Teenagers today aren't more cruel than they were in the 1600s. It's just that now when we chastise each other, everybody that has access to the internet can see it. And once that picture or video is out, You can't be completely safe in your mind that the past won't creep up on you at some random time.
13: I saved the pictures. I know the teacher's deleted. I
10: still have them. This is the new Scarlet Letter.
11: It is now ordered that you shall wear upon your bosom for the rest of your natural
6: life the Scarlet Letter A.
0: The Modern Day Scarlet Letter A was produced by Timmy Tayo Fegbenle and Courtney Stein and edited by Marianne McCune. It received this year's Radio Impact Award. Speaking of impact, since this report aired, Timmy Tayo has become a leading young voice on the issue of slut-shaming, and her story has informed coverage of the topic by the BBC, numerous magazines, blogs, and a new book on bullying by Slate's Emily Bazelon. (laughs) And now we've come to our Director's Choice Award. As the name suggests, this award is chosen by the Third Coast staff to recognize a story we find particularly impressive. Maybe it's beautifully produced or is wholly original in its storytelling. It could be a story that captures our imagination or just plain tickles our fancy. This year's winner does all of those things. When producer Jesse Cox found long-forgotten cassette tapes gathering dust in the front room of his childhood home, he was like a starving man stumbling onto a smorgasbord. And gorge he did. Those tapes, containing the voices of his grandparents performing a live mind-reading act for huge audiences, launched Cox on an Oz-like journey full of magic, surprises, and a family mystery he wanted to solve once and for all. Here's an excerpt from the 2013 Third Coast Director's Choice Award winner, Keep Them
7: Guessing.
11: Good evening to you all, both at home and here in the
7: number one Piccadilly studio, right in the middle of the West End of London.
1: When I first heard these recordings, I remember being fascinated by the sounds of my grandparents' voices. Just hearing them on these old tapes was pretty great. But I was completely captivated by what they were doing on the radio, because their program on the BBC was a mind-reading show. This is the voice of my grandfather, Sid. A large envelope will be taken down into the studio audience. Each show was made up of a series of mind-reading demonstrations. My grandfather is preparing for one now. It's all live, which is important. And he's asking the audience to place items in an envelope, which he'll then try to transmit to my grandma in a moment.
7: Because we haven't got much time.
1: Visualise a studio that sits over 150 people uh, At the front of the room is a small stage and on it are big old-fashioned microphones with BBC written on them. This is where my grandfather stands. he has a blackboard to one side of him and he's joined on the stage by judges. These are famous people
3: I'm delighted to be here and I can't wait for it to begin so I'm just going to sit around.
1: Their role is to be your eyes and make sure nothing dodgy happens. This will him. Meanwhile, my grandma is somewhere outside of the studio, in a taxi or a diving bell, once even the Tower of London. And in this tape... She's in an aeroplane flying around Bristol.
7: Well, hello from a Boeing Strato Stratocruiser uh, high above England in a somewhat bumpy circle. This is
1: the BBC announcer.
7: We are here, a lot of press men, and we're under the heat of uh, movie reel cameras, and uh, the, I need hardly say stewards and stewardesses going about their deft and courteous business. I'm moving even further away from Leslie Piddington, and here is Jean Gordon, a stewardess. What did you do to Mrs Piddington a few minutes ago?
0: I searched her very thoroughly in spite of the cold. I made her take off everything.
7: I looked in the padding of her jacket. I looked in her boots. I even looked in her mouth and her hair. And now I have her handbag, so I think you can be sure she's nothing hidden away anywhere on her person. Well, here we are, still rocking about, and uh, back to you, Sydney in Piccadilly.
1: Once they've done all of this, it's time to transmit what's been collected from the studio audience to my grandma in the aeroplane. Before you discount all of this as an elaborate hoax... You need to know that Leslie is surrounded by journalists. She doesn't have access to any headphones or any radio signal, and you never hear the correct answer until after Leslie has telepathically received the items.
6: Something about food. It's uh, a ration book. Some of the things have been cut out. If you concentrate on on the rations that have been left in. Milk, eggs, cheese, meat, that's all, I think.
1: And that's verified by someone in the audience.
7: One definitely was the Ministry of Food, the uh, ration card, exactly
1: as she said, and I really must meet Mrs Pittington. (laughs) (laughs) When I was 14, RN's Hindsight made a programme about my grandparents. We all went up to my grandma's place to listen around the radio.
2: In today's program, we go back to the years after World War II and to the period which has become known as the Golden Age of Radio. This feature uncovers the forgotten story of the darlings of Australian and British radio in the post-war years.
11: We present The Piddington.
1: Until then... I knew my grandma had been an actress and had been really famous, but I never knew the full story of the Piddingtons. That was when I started asking my grandma about it.
3: I'd really forgotten an awful lot about most of it. I'd put it so much behind me that I'd really, truly forgotten. Would you
6: concentrate on the last part?
1: And as Leslie remembered, she started telling us the stories too about Sid developing the show in Changi Prison, the story of my grandfather wooing my grandma on Bondi Beach while they practised, and how, five years later, they followed a dream and sailed to London.
6: It's almost as good as being on
11: Bondi Beach. Have you ever been there? I'm afraid I've never been, although it sounds very...
3: It's all coming back more and more and more, and even now, each day, strange things are popping into my mind, which were obviously always there, but they've been buried, and now they're coming out. It's most odd.
11: Hello, surface. Will you turn the air on, please? Hello, diver, air pressure on. right Righto, surface, stand by to lower.
1: Stuffed into a cardboard box at the bottom of my grandma's closet, I found a bunch of press books and thousands of clippings. There were headlines like, Pittington's Keep Millions Guessing, and 20 million people listen.
7: Leslie and I are standing by the edge of a deep tank filled with water.
1: My grandparents were massively famous.
7: And round us there are diving
11: helmets and boots.
1: Since I became aware of this story, I've become a little obsessed by it. I've recorded interviews with my grandma, read through all the old newspaper clippings, uncovered posters and pictures, all trying to work out how they did it. Because... This is how my grandparents ended each broadcast. Are you happy, it's like they threw out a challenge to me.
7: Well,
6: only thanks very much, everyone, and you're the judge.
7: Yeah, well, I think we well, all and right. I'm baffled now. Back to City Pittington in Piccadilly.
1: And this is how Leslie ended the hindsight program.
7: <laughs>
3: Was it real? That's what you're wanting to know, isn't it? <laughs> You know, I drive my grandsons crazy because they can't bear me not telling them. I simply say what we always said, you be the judge. And I still do, if I must Keep
0: them guessing. This year's Director's Choice Award winner was produced by Jesse Cox with sound engineer Russell Stapleton and supervising producer Claudia Toronto for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's 360 documentaries on Radio National. So were Jesse's grandparents mind readers or was it just a trick? Hear the whole story at thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2013 Third Coast Festival Broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxai. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Today, we're listening to winners of our annual documentary competition. But you can also hear great radio from around the world anytime on our podcast. Subscribe at thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up next, the Third Coast Festival Gold Award.
4: If you live here, you're part of them. You know, you live on that block or you live in that area, you're one of them. Stay tuned.
0: Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Gwen Maxai. And now it's time for the 2013 Third Coast Gold Award winner. The story begins on the first day of school at Harper High on the south side of Chicago. Principal Leonetta Sanders is leading an assembly, welcoming her students to a new year with enthusiasm tempered by caution and grief. This American Life's Ira Glass speaks after Principal Sanders.
10: Last year was a difficult year for most of us, for all of us in the Harper community. You know, um, and the freshmen may not know, but we lost three students last year.
1: This is actually underplaying the bad news. Last year, 21 kids, current and recent Harper students, were wounded by gunshots. Five recent students died. And that is all on top of the three current students that Ms. Sanders mentioned. Total, 29 shot. Eight of them dead.
10: Well, we know that their spirits are with us. So at this time, I'm just going to ask that we take about 20, 30 seconds just for a moment of silence for Marcus Nunn, Cedric Bell, and Shikaki Askin right now.
1: Watching this, it's hard not to think that if you grafted these facts onto another high school in a wealthier place maybe a suburb. Dozens of students shot, three of them killed. In other places, that would be national news, right? We would all know the name of that school. It's worth uh, noting that this is a gym filled with hundreds of teenagers who this very same morning have been asked over and over to be quiet and who, like most teenagers, haven't exactly jumped to. When this moment comes, nothing moves.
10: Praise God.
1: And then high school resumes.
10: At this time, again, for the freshmen.
0: During the school year, three reporters, Ben Calhoun, Alex Kotlowitz, and Linda Lutton, spent five months immersed in the school with virtually unlimited access as the administration tried to deal with the trauma of past violence and prevent future shootings. Here's an excerpt from the 2013 Third Coast Gold Award winner, a two-hour documentary
8: from This American Life called
0: simply... Harper High School. Two
8: weeks after that first day assembly, assistant principal Chad Adams is in the hallways. He spots a sophomore, a new kid, a transfer student named Jordan. So you were at Millborn? Did you know, um, uh... Mr. Adams tells Jordan he needs to talk to him in his office. There have been changes in his schedule, he says. Though this is just a ploy, they go to his office, and Mr. Adams gets to the real purpose. He asks Jordan where he lives.
9: Uh, and Loomis. and
13: Loomis. Yeah. So that way.
8: Who's on that block?
13: Like, what's you know, who's on that block? Who runs that block?
8: What Mr. Adams is trying to figure out is what gang Jordan is affiliated with, and what gangs he might potentially have conflicts with here at Harper. Without hesitating, Jordan tells Mr. Adams he's affiliated with a gang called Face World. And they're friendly with a half dozen other gangs. They're clicked up, kids say.
9: Well, we clicked up with J-Town right there on 69.
6: Who else are y'all clicked up with?
9: Hoodville, Low Block, Head Squad, COB. Uh, we got a lot of, lot of people want to get in it with us, Though so I ain't gonna lie. I know. Your, your, your name was hot last spring. What was going on last spring? It's a war zone around the... Uh, I can't lie. It's just a war zone. People like us. We so close to each other, it don't make no sense. Because we right... Our opposition is right down the street. Literally, it's on the next block. So, like, we on 70th and Rockwell, and they on 71st and Rockwell. That's how close we is, so...
8: They talk about this for 15 minutes, and what's remarkable is how matter-of-fact it is. They might as well be talking about what bus Jordan needs to take home or where the cafeteria is. There's no shame to admitting your gang affiliation. It's nothing you have to keep secret. Mr. Adams has one more goal for this meeting.
11: All right, so
13: I haven't met you yet because you weren't here last year, but I'm Mr. Adams. I'm the assistant principal. This is my office. All right, so can we make an agreement today that if... If something happens in the block or something something happens in the school that you'll um that you'll come to me to help you fix the problem and we'll use
8: this. Adams points to his head.
13: Look at me, Mr. Rogers. We'll use this
9: instead of this.
8: He points to his fist. Can we make an
9: agreement? I see I make an agreement like if something happened in school. Like, if something happened in school, I'll probably come to you and you like, what's going down, but outside, it's a whole different story. And I'm not
13: saying that I'm going to be able to help you with your problems outside the school. I'm just saying if something happens on the block that might lead back into the building, that you'll come to me so we can fix it here, so
9: you don't have to worry about it here. Uh, I'll try to keep my word on that. I'll try to make keep that agreement, but I don't, it's probably going to be hard, though.
13: Okay. you know, and that's okay. I know it's gonna be hard. It's not an easy agreement. Yeah.
9: If it's if it's with if it's if I get to a problem with that baco, if I get to a problem with one of baco hood people in this school, I ain't even gonna lie. I'm probably not even gonna come. To I'm probably just gonna do it right there because the problem is escalated. Cause there ain't no talking with them.
8: you have an idea of how street gangs operate. Crips and bloods, people and folks controlling huge swaths of a city, shooting it out over drug territory. A single gang leader controlling thousands of members, a strictly enforced hierarchy branching out underneath him with gang colors and hats tilted to the right or left. For this hour, forget all that. The gangs in the Englewood neighborhood today are not those gangs. There's no central leader, no hierarchy, no colors. The fights aren't over drug territory. In fact, lots of these gangs aren't even selling drugs. They're different gangs with different rules. These rules apply absolutely to boys. Girls get slightly more leeway. Rule number one, look at a map. When I ask kids what their parents don't understand about gangs these days, they say it's this. Their parents tell them not to join a gang, as if there's some initiation to go through, some way to sign up. Today, whether or not you want to be in a gang, you're in one. If you live on pretty much any block near Harper High School, you have been assigned a gang. Your mother bought a house on 72nd and Hermitage? You're S-dub. You live across the street from the school? That's D-Ville. When you ask kids or cops or school staff how it got like this, they'll tell you that at one point this whole area was controlled pretty much by a single gang, the Gangster Disciples. But, and this is how most people tell this part of the story, Chicago police have been so effective at locking up the big gang leaders that the hierarchy of those gangs has crumbled, and that's left a lot of room for newcomers. Your gang might control nothing more than the block you live on. In Harper's attendance area alone, which is a couple square miles, there are more than 15 gangs, also known as cliques, sets, factions, or crews. Some don't have anyone in charge, but they do have guns. That's what every kid has told me. Otherwise, why would you call yourself a gang, they say. Aaron Washington is a police officer assigned to Harper. He's there seven hours a day, seems to know every kid in the school. He says that for protection, for survival, kids walk to school with the kids in their clique, often through enemy territory. So I ask him, what if I'm a kid and I really don't want any part of this gang stuff? How can I avoid it?
4: You can't. It's not going to happen.
8: He says it used to be possible to be neutral, what they called a neutron.
4: There is no neutrons anymore. It used to be, if you played sports or you were academically better than the average kid, they didn't bother you. Now it's different. It doesn't matter. If you live here, you're part of them. You know, you live on that block or you live in that area, you're one of them. The way they get to school, they have to come to school with one of these factions, one of these gangs. They're going to come to school with them. They don't have a choice.
8: I can hardly believe that a Chicago police officer is telling me this, admitting that kids don't have a choice about being gang-affiliated. I've never heard police talk like this. Later, I ask Officer Washington if he'll get in trouble for saying this. I mean, aren't cops supposed to just tell kids, hey, don't join a gang?
4: I, I put it like this. I'm not saying it's okay to be in a gang. I'm not saying that I approve of it, I agree with it. If I could take them all and say, hey, look here, ain't no gangs, you know, (laughs) I'd do that. But this ain't a fairy tale.
8: And this is the point. Gangs aren't the bad kids in the corner here. They're the defining social structure in the school. It's who you sit with at lunch, the kids you say hi to in the hallway. It's the water everybody swims in. Assistant Principal Adams guesses that fewer than 10% of Harper students are actually gang-banging, that is, active on the block, involved in crime. He thinks all the rest of the kids in the school are just caught up by where they live. Okay, so rule number one is know your geography. Rule number two, never walk by yourself. One day at dismissal, I thought I saw a freshman walking home alone i stopped stop you because you're walking by yourself. But I was
9: wrong. You're walking with them.
8: Larnell pointed over his shoulder at a couple of girls about 15 feet back. So you're actually walking with the girls back there?
9: Yeah, I always walk with people.
10: What's the advantage?
9: It's not trying to get jumped on a shot. Because they be fighting shooting up here almost every day. Because won't nobody mess with somebody in a group, walking in a group.
8: And that's true, but it's complicated because of rule number three. Rule number three, never walk with someone else. See, walking in a group can send its own message. If you're with a group of boys in Englewood, on your porch, walking home from school, you're highlighting your affiliation, which makes you more of a target. It's a huge catch-22 for kids in this neighborhood. If you walk alone, you risk being jumped. If you walk with someone else, you risk being labeled as a gang member and being shot. Rule number four, Don't use the sidewalk. Every day at dismissal, kids drift out of Harper High School and walk along Wood Street. Actually, right down the middle of Wood Street. It's a strange scene. Cars drive slowly, waiting for students to move out of the way. One teacher told me that when she first arrived at Harper, she thought this was just plain hooliganism, the teenagers taking over. One afternoon, a girl named Alex explained, that's not it at all. We feel safer like this.
10: For some reason, we just feel safe like that. We never like to walk past the trees and stuff. It's too much stuff going on. Too much stuff going
8: on is shorthand here for the shootings, the fights, the craziness. It's better to walk down the middle of the street where you can keep a broad view of things and where you have a few more seconds to run if you need to. Rule number five, if they shoot, don't run. 12th grader Antorio is on the Harper High School football team. In fact, he's one of the best running backs in the entire city of Chicago. On the field, he zips around linemen like they're not even there, cutting and weaving and then racing for the end zone. Those are skills he purposefully ignores when shot at.
11: I fall
9: to the ground.
10: That's your strategy?
9: Yeah. Because if you run, you probably get shot in the back or something like that. So I just fall to the ground. Most people like shoot from like... Say if we like in front of my house, shoot from the corn or do a drive-by of cars, something I just fall to the ground.
8: Okay, by now you may be wondering if these gangs aren't fighting over drug territory, what are the shootings about? That brings us to rule number six. Rule number six: you can be shot for reasons big and small. If you ask the police or school officials or kids what the shootings are about, they'll mention girls, money owed. There was a paintball incident that led to real guns going off. Petty stuff, like losing a fistfight, he-said-she-said arguments. Often they'll tell you a shooting is over nothing. Retaliation for earlier shootings is a big reason for getting shot. Shootings can ping-pong back and forth between rival gangs for years. Of course, you can also be shot for walking off your block. And finally, rule number seven, never go outside. When I asked kids for advice about staying alive in this neighborhood, they told me the best advice was to stay away from your block as long as possible every day. Get involved in something at school so you can stay as late as they let you. When you do go home, don't leave the house. Don't even go on the porch. If you want to see the lengths you have to go to to not be part of the gang, you should meet a senior named Deontay. Being anti-gang is Deontay's entire identity. He's an outspoken Christian. He holds Bible study in his living room. Other kids come to him for advice, a role he wholly embraces. He's poised to be the valedictorian. When you talk to Deontay, you get a sense of what it takes to stay away from the gangs. Do you ever go out, like, just around the neighborhood?
9: Oh, no. No, not at all. And in a way, that can be bad as well, because that's when... Depression is easy to set in. That took a hold on me, because I've been in the house for about three years. I've been staying in the house a lot. Do you
8: feel lonely?
9: Um, at times, at times I feel lonely. At times I would want to have some friends, because I'm not, not really friends with anybody.
8: If you think about high school, how important friends are during that time, Imagine going through that with your whole goal being to avoid your school's social structure completely for four years. It's an incredibly high price to steer clear of the violence. It's a price most teenagers anywhere would find almost impossible to pay.
0: That was an excerpt from Harper High School the 2013 Third Coast Gold Award winner. After this show aired, Harper received a lot of attention. $250,000 in donations poured in. Michelle Obama visited the school, and two dozen Harper students traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet the president. But despite all the publicity, Harper is still struggling. Here are reporters Alex Kotlowitz and Linda
8: Lutton. There's probably many, many principals and schools still dealing with these issues uh, among their students and staff in a really
11: bare-bone b- bare way. I think, yeah. Right. No, in fact, because of loss of funds. I mean, Harper lost one of its social workers. It's lost its school psychiatrist. Um, its remaining social worker is down to part-time. I mean, for me, it's just it's criminal. I mean, given what they're up against. And they had another student who was killed this summer.
8: One of the things that I was struck by was the students' inability to see injustice in the situation they were living out. Lots of kids saw it as, had come to see it as so
11: normal. No, I think you're right. There was a lot of anger in that building among the kids, but it wasn't anger about their situation. So it was anger that was directed mostly at each other.
8: You know, this is one of the most segregated communities in the country, and it's troubling to go to a place that's so completely isolated and so hard hit by poverty and segregation and not find young people challenging that
11: i will say the other thing that we didn't you know talk about just the response of the school to the piece. i mean they've they just were thrilled i, I was just back in the school the other day and you know kids were coming up i had one of the football players come up and says where's linda you know they just they i think they they miss i know i miss them and i think they miss us
8: One of the teachers came up to me after the first hour aired. She said, this whole time, this whole first semester, I have avoided all three of you. She said she didn't want, you know, her school to be misrepresented. She didn't want kids to be exploited is the way she put it. Um, And she just said, thank you. Thank you for, you know, depicting our school the way it really is. And she said, I had a number of people tell me, my spouse finally understands where I go to work. Like, they finally understand, they finally get what it's like where I work. Linda Lutton and Alex Kotlowitz, who,
0: along with co-producers Ben Calhoun and Robin Simeon, and editors Ira Glass and Julie Snyder, produced This American Life's Harper High School, winner of the 2013 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Gold Award. To hear a longer version of our interview with Linda and Alex, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. All the time, all over the globe, people with talent and moxie are picking up their microphones, recording extraordinary things, and creating unforgettable stories that deepen our understanding of the world. At the Third Coast Festival, we think this is something to stand up and applaud. I'm Gwen Maxside. Thanks for listening to our broadcast of this year's Best. The program was produced by Katie Mingle with assistance from Maya Goldberg-Safer and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive producer of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The artistic director is Julie Shapiro. Support for Best of the Best comes from Busy Beaver Button Company, offering custom buttons, magnets, and bottle openers. All products proudly made in Chicago. More information is available at busybeaver.net. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago.
2: You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter, or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always...